Wednesday, January 24th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 146 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician... Uh, is a musician of whom I've been a big fan for many years. The tall, slender, East Village resident, uh, former, potentially future guitar player from the band Swans, Norman Westberg. Norman Westberg's on the show today, and uh, I'm really happy to be able to say that. Before we get into it, I want to apologize for uh, this episode going up two days late. Just got back in town uh, early this morning, and I didn't have time to finalize things before I left. So uh, I I don't like when this kind of stuff happens, when I can't meet a deadline, but um, here we are. And today's episode is a really good one. By all standards, I'm really happy to share today's episode with you. Do you guys like the band Swans? Swans is easily one of my favorite bands ever, and and today's guest, Norman Westberg, has been there. He's come and gone from the band throughout the years, but he's been there literally since the beginning. And this past November, uh, I went with a friend to Warsaw, the venue in Brooklyn, to catch night one of the three-night run that Swans was, was doing as the farewell concerts of the most recent um, incarnation of the band. For the last seven or eight years, uh, Swans has been performing as a steady unit. And, you know, I, th- I think anyone you talk to who, who follows the music of Swans, who loves the music of Swans, you know, will talk about this period of the band uh, with a certain amount of reverence. Certainly, um, you know, it could be said that there uh, has been a level of maturity to the music. Um, and, and, and by that, I mean... You know, the musical ideas that have always been there with that group and with that group of musicians um, has, has, has reached a really special, nuanced, uh, well-lived-in place. And the friend that I took to that show, you know, I asked him if he was a Swans fan and he, you know, wasn't that familiar with their stuff. And I said, well, look, I got an extra ticket and every Swans concert I've ever been to has been, you know, like a religious experience. And sure enough... Um, they played uh, that night for over two and a half hours. I think they took one or two breaks throughout that entire concert. And and it's very ritualistic. And I didn't think to mention that to my friend, you know, that, hey, uh, you know, are you okay with really long concerts? Cause, and I remember looking at him about 15 minutes into the concert and just hoping that he was enjoying it because if he wasn't, it was going to be a very uh, long and unpleasant evening. Fortunately, his mind was blown open as I would have expected that it would have been. So that's, you know, that's a quick bit about Swans. Um, today's show is not about Swans. It's about Norman, the guitar player who's been, like I said, in and out of the band since the very beginning. Norman and I are, are, are kind of neighbors. He lives, you know, north of me in the East Village. I'm down here on the Lower East Side. He's originally from Detroit. Um, and he's got, you know, when you, when you get talking to Norm, you realize he's a real down-home Detroit boy. Uh, and you'll, you'll hear that in today's show. Um, he's also just a master technician of sound and of, of the guitar specifically. 
all of the music on today's show I've taken from uh, solo releases that he's that he's been putting up. He's got a Bandcamp page, and if you go to it, there's they're all amazing. Several records of music for solo guitar. In general, there's a lot of loops and drones and you know sort of atmospheric textures. Norman makes really intense and incredible sounds with the guitar. When you watch him perform, um, he, he's just got this stillness to him that is really sort of mysterious. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote real fast. This is from this is what how Michael Gira from Swans describes Norman Westberg on stage. The subject plays guitar and stands impossibly still grinding a helpless nugget of gum into objection while simultaneously piercing objects near and far with a cruel and impassive gaze. His hands move up and down the neck of his guitar without collaborating with the rest of his body. An old-school American stoic in the extreme, he once made Michael Jira weep helplessly by smiling for a glimpsed instant on stage. He knits scarves for friends and family while listening to raw power on repeat. I'd say that about sums it up. Norman's a really nice guy, and I enjoyed this conversation a lot, uh, not just as a fan of his playing and as a fan of the band Swans, um, but also to talk to someone who's been in New York for, for, you know, a good period of time making music and observing the city and as it's continued to change and evolve over the years. If you want to find out more about Norman, go to normanwestberg.com. Check out his Etsy. Check out his Bandcamp. There's a lot of good stuff there. normanwestberg.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor. Please rate and review and subscribe to it in iTunes. You can do it super quick. It helps. It goes a long way. And uh, go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Throw in a few bucks, and we can keep this listener-supported model of, of podcasting going. All right, that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Sorry for the delay. Here's my conversation with Norman Westberg. You know, that's really scary. It is. I was at, you know, Sweetwater? The... In Brooklyn? Uh-huh. Sixth Street. Okay. It used to be an old, like, crusty bar. Right. And then it was sold, and this very nice guy, Pablo, bought it. It became a nice restaurant. Beautiful. You eat meat. Yeah. Great hamburgers and meat stuff. Um, but John and Fel and I, we, I work at Main Drag. Yeah. We would go there. He was very good friends with them. And one day we're sitting at the bar, and we're talking about blowing stuff up, of course. <laughs> You know, he grew up in a kind of vaguely rural Pennsylvania. He yeah. had gun culture. He says he took his gun to school, and you put it by the door. Check it in. Because you're going to go hunting after. Very different than me, but I'm from Detroit, where they would okay. go out on the front porch New Year's and shoot guns. My yeah. dad even did it a couple times. As uh, Your dad was a hunter, no. or he was just a guy with guns? Everybody had a gun. He did hunt because uh, my uncle, his brother-in-law hunted yeah and he would go but he didn't like it because he realized right away that the hunting was about drinking yeah you go out and you just get smashed yeah, which yeah. wasn't an interest of his really and uh but he had a gun there were guns he was in the war world war ii so yeah there were 
guns. I wasn't, you know, and when I was a kid, you know, you get a gun for a toy. You get a cap gun or then a, yeah, you get, you a get all sorts pellet of gun. fake guns. I never got BB guns or pellet guns. Okay. I never got any of that. But anyways, we're talking about blowing stuff up and, uh, you know, hitting the end of the bullet with a nail. Right. Like stupid stuff. Still, yeah. And the people behind us went and whispered, just, they're talking about blowing stuff up. And uh, uh, scared them. Yeah. Because we're also dirty and hairy and weird looking. You know, <laughs> considering it's kind safe. of a nice restaurant. Right. You know, and we had just worked and actually fixing drums is like auto body. We're probably You fix all, the drums at Main Street. Yeah, yeah, we're all black and sure. have weird duct tape right. band-aids on. And uh, they, they were just kind of outright. And then they left finally, like looking at us and uh, the owner or one of the managers came over and said you know that those people were really funny that you guys had them nervous who are these people just people like transplants i mean who could possibly transplants or tourists yeah. or somebody who just yeah is not around you know like middle america right kind of people just as a side note am i an asshole for saying this to someone the other day i i was at my job which, you know, at a Which bar or restaurant. Oh, okay. Um, a tourist asked me how to get to the Twin Towers. And I, I it just, I didn't even think about it. I just said, they're gone. They're not there anymore. <laughs> yeah, you missed them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Wait, so which Detroit did you grow up in? Was Detroit, was it thriving while you were there? Or was it oh, after yeah. the... It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, right when I left is when it really started getting bad. I left in 1980. Okay. And uh, growing up, I lived a block away from a park. There were tons of kids. Uh-huh. I always say my, my childhood, it was idyllic, really. Yeah. Fantastic parents, you know, caring family. Married to each other. Absolutely. And just very old school. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, idyllic. Yeah. yeah. Very different from what my daughter is being raised, how she's being raised. Well, I mean, maybe, the, I mean, yeah, subjectively, but maybe the yeah. idea of, like, when I, you know, I, w- I was in Atlanta, like, a week or two ago, and the, there's greener yards, there's larger yeah. living spaces, but I'd, I'd be horrified to have children in this, like, pro-gun, Trumpian world. Yes, that's frightening. I'm glad we live in New York. Yeah. Because, yeah, even the suburban Detroit I know now is pretty pro-gun. Right. Yeah, I mean the East Village. You know, yeah, it's cold and dirty, and historically it's had some issues. But there's a lot of good people walking these streets. Sure, I mean there's another issue as far as that goes, like guns and gun control. Like if you know you're bringing your child over to somebody's house and you know there's a gun in the house, do you go? I mean, my family no. they have gun lockers. You know, they lock up the stuff. Yeah. They have children. They lock it up. They're very. Uh, I mean, they I f- know how to deal with it. I, I feel like with this current sort of like false and and misinformed sense of patriotism yeah. comes a misinformed um, attitude towards gun ownership. You know, you see these open carry guys, and it's right. clear they don't have respect for their guns or um, or or really. It's not a, yeah, it's more, what is it? It's a uh, power trip, really. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's anger-based. and I played in Birmingham, Alabama. Recently? um, A year ago, a year or so ago. With Swans or with? No, solo. Yeah. I I try to do solo shows, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was invited to play at the Hoover Library. Mm. 
And I went down, and as he was driving me from the airport, I noticed there were lots of, like, this is an open carry. Yeah. I'm like, really? And they said, yeah, but we don't have it in the library. There was some kind of a... It's a government building. Yeah, those guys don't because like Because the either. mayor, I think, had an office. Uh. Somebody, a senator, had an office attached to the library. No guns. Right. You can't just walk in with a gun. Whereas, if you're in a restaurant, sure enough, you see somebody come in with a holster. I just, you know, I remember my, when my sister, my sister went to Israel. Uh, when we were, I was like. 19 at the time i had an interest in going there i had an interest in sort of like seeing if that might be something for me and when she came back and she was telling me about it and she's talking about these guns everywhere that was the first thing to me that i was like you know what i don't think i have an interest in this but i think all of europe the first time i went over to europe and what was that swans 83 84 at the beginning and um you know just being in an airport or being in a city around where consulates are because Uh we'd have to go get visas right and the amount of guns around it's a trip. I was unused to that. It's a trip. It's not. It's not. It's military to me. guys, right? It makes me feel uh, like I'm walking on eggshells, and it makes me feel like, like, "Ooh, they're expecting something." And do I trust that guy to do the right thing? No. I see these kids, and they're doing gun tricks. They're spinning their Uzis around on their fingers yeah. to entertain girls. And it's like, well, what if something happens? That guy's going to do something. He's going to shoot the wrong person. He's going to shoot me. I feel like if you grew up, I'm, I'm assuming things about you right now, but if you grew up like people like us, you know, and you were a little bit on the outside of things, generally authoritarian figures have always been unkind to me. So right. when I see him have a gun, I don't, it does not cause me to feel comfort. Right. Yeah. And their argument of, well, you have to be as well armed as the bad guys. That's a crock of shit. You saw what happened in Vegas. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter how many of those people at that concert in Vegas might have been armed. It, w- it wouldn't have helped a single thing. It would what have made it worse. Right. That's right. That's right. What about, uh, yeah, what's become of that conspiracy theory that that guy, there's no way he could have done what he did if he read any of that? Did you watch that video that the New York Times edited together? Uh-huh. Man, if you want to lose some sleep. They edited, they took just, you know, however many hundreds of, like, uh, available video shot on iPhones and everything, um, as well as with, you know, professional footage. And they traced the timeline of from when the shooting began to when it ended, which right. is like a 12-minute long period. And that's long. That's a long time. Yeah. And and they they constructed the whole thing second by second. And you, it's like, you know, you, you read the news, you go, wow, this guy just blew away all these people. But when you see it drawn out like that, and there was like something like 12 different periods of gunfire. So pop, 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 you know, for 45 seconds a minute, and it would stop. People and it's have, all coming from the same place. Though. But no one knows where it's coming from. It's dark. It's coming from the sky. And he's got flash suppression. Just, I guess. Well, there's just, I mean, in the melee, you know, yeah. you know, it, they actually seemingly found him quicker than it might would seem possible. Yeah. Um, uh, what was the point? Uh, but it's it's just it's. <laughs> I I don't think having more guns is going to help anything. No, I That's don't think it. so either. So growing up in Detroit, were you like in the city proper or out in the Well, uh, I'm on the west side of Detroit. Was your dad in the auto business? No. A bread delivery man really? and then a general worker. Yeah. yeah. So he's like a normal job. Like he was out at World War II and – Yes. I think he, he did some odd stuff. Like he worked on – they had these gambling machines like pachinko machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like upright. They, they were on the wall and he serviced those. He was yeah. kind of a handy guy. Yeah. And then I, he had uh, three children at that point, my two sisters, my brother. 
and he needed a real job, and he yeah. became a, a tasty bread delivery guy. <laughs> and that's what he did for until he retired from there. Yeah, and then got a job working at his. They built these giant electrical cabinets, and he was just like the man Friday. He right. would go and get stuff from the airport. Yeah, he would drive around and deliver stuff. Build he was that and, guy. Yeah. yeah, was your mom working too? My mom worked at a uh, uh, like a drugstore mm -hmm. in Detroit. We call them drugstores. They sell booze and everything, <laughs> but they sell. They have a prescription counter. Yeah, um, she worked at one of those for a while. Those places are strange. Yeah. They're stranger now than they were then. Yeah, like I was shocked moving to New York that you couldn't go into a drug store <laughs> and buy liquor. I'm like, where's the liquor counter? Well, it's like you go to LA. And where's like the that. beer? It's but like, it's strange. Yeah. You think like, oh, I'm going down to the pharmacy. I'm going to get a pack of menthols. Um, a comic book. A and, comic book, a pack of condoms, yeah, and antidepressants. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Which in Detroit, I guess it's one stop in a way. Yeah. But did you grow up with a sense of like being like a proud down-home Detroit boy? Was it? Were you into being from Detroit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even then, I, I thought, well, Detroit has such a rich musical history, and yeah, I knew that even then. Yeah, that. Um, well, Michigan in general. Yeah, um, not necessarily Detroit, because you know all my my hero, the Stooges guys. That's all Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor, right? But um, still, it's Michigan, and there's something I always say. There's something in the water in Michigan that makes guitar players sound the way they do give them an edge i don't know if it's an, it's just a, a particular what is that sound? you're talking I about like mc5 like, you're talking yeah like that kind of thing yeah and the stooges and stooges yeah it's a little more arty the more i read about them the more it's almost like an art thing uh-huh but then they you know you play something long enough you get kind of technically proficient at one level i think yeah even if what you're playing wouldn't maybe be immediately described as right Technical. I think I was on the tour bus and I, I downloaded uh, the first Stooges record. Uh huh. Wow, what a mess. <laughs> Wait, Raw Power? No, the first one, uh -huh. just the Stooges. Yeah. With I Want to Be Your Dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, wow, this is weird music. Yeah. Because I like, I like rock music. I listen to rock music. That's your first music too, right? What I used to listen to when I was a kid, Black Sabbath and the Jay Giles band, you uh -huh. know, like bands and the west side of detroit was more the cover bands right so when i first started playing we did cover songs we played aerosmith songs yeah and montrose yeah and then one day i heard the stooges and went that's it no more of that stuff we're playing stooges songs and what was it that you think grabbed you immediately that i could actually play them and they sounded pretty good we played david bowie songs uh -huh. too yeah and it's like yeah this isn't really working so well it doesn't feel Feels very theatrical right, really. that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you had to be super good to play them, right? I mean, it wasn't like we ever played them well, right? Yeah, when you can actually approach the music as something that you can do, it brings it much closer and yes. it puts it in focus. It's like, wow, if I can do this, why not just? And my view always is, why do I learn somebody else's song? Just make do a song, play yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about. I'm not a guy that sits there and learns other people's songs. That was from the beginning you felt that way? Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I realized I didn't have the patience to sit there, too. I guess part of the talent of doing that is the patience to do it, mm -hmm. which I learned early on that I did not have. I have learned songs. Sure. 
But did you also learn or have a sense of acceptance around that? Like, that's okay because that's not who I am? Or was did, was there ever like a like beating yourself up over it? I'd beat myself up over it some. Yeah. Because I thought it would be really cool. To be able to play like Keith Richards or something. To do a song like that. Like, I, I remember somebody came over to the house. We had a party and I had guitars. And this guy started playing Over the Hills and Far Away. Uh-huh. So I watched him and I got the initial riff down. I'm like, wow, and he played the whole song. And wouldn't that be cool just to be able to do that? Yeah. But it takes work and I didn't feel it justified my time. But I feel like when you hear something and you say, Hey, I want to do that and you kind of begin that process, like there's a lot of different things you're responding to. You know, even like you know, maybe you hear someone like Keith Richards and you say, I wanna I want I want it to sound like that. I don't want to play that, but I, I totally w- screwed up too. I didn't bring you any music. I got music. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a fan. Oh, okay. Um but you know what I'm saying? It's like I want I want my guitar to sound like that, you know. Or someone else might approach it and they say, "Oh, I want to, you know, um, I want to play like logically like he does. I want to approach scales I want like that night note to note." Yeah. 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 Uh, I've always been kind of more. I like the way things sound more than what it is that they're doing. And do you get obsessive about trying to recreate. Maybe more obsessive about what I get from as a listener, and then how like I. Maybe not try to recreate exactly, right. although sometimes, but how I sort of process that into what I'm doing and have it be some kind of... Because I never feel like anything I play makes much sense, you know? Right. So I'm just trying to understand it somewhat. But then do you, I do this thing where I'm playing, and I go, oh, wait a minute. Those three notes are from some weird song somewhere. Yes, that's happened to me a lot. And it could be a totally weird song. And then I start kind of really accentuating that weird song, uh-huh. even though it's just a little part of it. Well, I mean, I feel like making music, whether it's working on a record and the way you're putting the mix together or writing a song or something, a lot of, for me anyway, I don't really know what I'm doing. I, I'm just kind of working towards what, well, that doesn't quite feel right. Let me push right. it this way. Let me push it that way. And there have been times in the studio specifically where I'm kind of helping shape the sound. And then maybe a year after the record comes out, two years, I'm listening to some old record that I love and I go, I stole that moment. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like yes. Almost verbatim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a reverb trail or something. Do you do the thing? I, I do it. I try to avoid music that I'm playing, the type of music, like the genre. Yeah? Because it might influence me too much. Like, I would hate to hear something and go, oh, that's exactly what I do. I guess I can't do it anymore. I know what you mean. I have that. I have more of a thing, like a fear where... If I ever get as good as I want to be on my instrument, I'll have to, I, I won't have to play anymore. Okay. <laughs> I will have done it and like, oh, that's it, you know? I wonder. No, I don't think that ever happens. It'll never happen. Yeah. I mean, you play... The clarinet. Oh, clarinet, yeah. My wife plays, used to, when she was a kid. Yeah. yeah. Her father was a saxophone player. Professionally? In the Navy. Yeah. And then... Um, uh, school he taught out in uh, Central Islip in Long Island. Yeah, for years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the army bands, navy bands—that used to be like a real yeah. thing to strive for. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess are they still good. They're probably still good. What's that? The army bands—they're probably still good, right? Oh yeah. I'm, well, I would guess would <laughs> they probably make them buy their own stuff now, though. Right. So, did you go to college for music or? No. 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 <laughs> That's not something... I didn't know that. It's funny. A friend of mine was talking about that. Like, he just couldn't find anything. And then he dawned on him that he could go to college for music. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. can go to college for music? Yeah. Fantastic. I'm there. Then he didn't finish. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. 
Yeah, it never dawned on. I I don't know. I'm. Yes, I wish I was a little more. But then it it's pointless it's, even right. thinking about right. That. Like been more aware when I was younger. Yeah. That I can do different things. I don't have to do. I studied architecture. Oh really? My wife's an architect. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get far. You did you finish the program? No way. <laughs> no, I did like a year at Lawrence Tech in uh, architectural school. I got I did really good on uh, the ACTs and uh-huh. SATs. Yeah. So I got a scholarship. Based on those scores or, those or the scores. overall student performance. <laughs> Bad student? The overall student performance, I don't think was stellar, but those yeah. tests were amazing. Yeah. I had a good day. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Right. My mind was right that day. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got into that, and I just couldn't, I didn't have the patience to do the math. Yeah. And it was way over my head. And once you lose something, it's gone. Yeah. It's hard to make up that. You have to stay focused. And I wasn't. Right. You were, were you paying a lot of attention to the guitar? I was playing thing? more and just partying. You know, I was yeah. with my friends. Yeah. And a lot of, like, my family, for the most part, they're not college people. Right. My one sister in Arizona, they're very college-oriented. Mm. But my other sister, I don't think any of her children went to college. Yeah. It's not a thing. My family neither. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of curious. I, I, you know, something you said a minute ago and certainly something I relate to because I did, uh, I did about a year and a half at a bad college, dropped out, and then later on did like a vocational program, um, which is another thing. But, you know, if I had parents, I feel like pushing me in the direction of taking school more seriously. I, I, that's, that's always been something I sort of like half, halfway regret, halfway wish was done differently, you know? But, you know, my brother didn't finish college. My dad didn't go to college. My mom right. didn't finish college. My sister I mean, what did. what can they do, though? I don't think it, it's having an awareness of what is possible. You have to, you, if you don't know you don't know something, then what are you supposed to do? Right. A part of it, though, is finding what you should be doing. Right. And definitely the architectural program was not what I should have been doing. Yeah. Whereas I went to college again, just before the Swans started again, yeah. seven, eight years ago. I was in Berkeley College. I decided out of, I did temp work uh-huh. in the presentation center and proofreading. And I decided, what can I stand? I didn't paralegal. Maybe I'll become a paralegal. Yeah. So I started going there and I discovered I had to take an accounting class. Uh-huh. I loved the accounting class. Really? But all of the credits that I was gaining for the paralegal course didn't transfer into the accounting class. And you just dig yourself more and more into a ditch. Yeah. I didn't finish. I did a year. My daughter was born. Uh-huh. Swan started up again. Yeah. So, so when I went back to school and I did very good. And it was like a, a positive thing for me. Right. Because I've always thought, ah, I can't do that. I'm not smart enough to do that. Right. But the school, if I applied myself, which I did, um, I did great. I mean, I don't, you know, in a perfect world, 18-year-olds shouldn't be in college because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Like, if, you're, if you've lived a bit of life, you've had a bit of success, a bit of failure, a bit of heartbreak, a yeah. bit of really figuring out, some, some, somewhat figuring out who you are and where you belong, I think you're going to have a better go of it. Yeah. I was the old guy in class, How did too. that feel? <laughs> it was interesting because we had to do, uh, we had to get up in front of the class. We had a class about public speaking. Uh-huh. And you had to get up and talk. 
and I demonstrated uh, how I make wooden stuff. What, what do you mean? Like for drum kits or for... No. Oh, I like jewelry, like rings, uh -huh. wooden rings. I do crafty stuff. Yeah. So I made a whole presentation with the Dremel. I explained. I even made a bunch of them for the class if you want. That's really nice. Fits. Yeah. And one of the students was really impressed at how relaxed I was up there doing this stuff. And he'd get up there and he'd do exactly what I did when I was in high school, freeze. Yeah. And start saying the same thing over again. Yeah. And like, Choking can I on. start again? Ugh. And I felt so bad for the guy. And yeah, I talked to him and I helped him out a little bit. And, yeah. And said, it doesn't matter. That's the, the secret. It just who cares? It and it's nothing matter. about imagining everybody naked. It's just... It really, matter. you've got to figure out how to just enjoy what you're talking about, which means talk about something you believe in. Yeah. And that's what he ended up doing. He talked about like rappers or something that he was interested <laughs> in. And he's like, wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah. And go, yeah. And it's not always easy to find that thing. Right. You might have to try a few different things. Right. And scrap some ideas. But um, yeah, you can do it. So did you finish that program? Um, no. So fuck it. <laughs> well, like I say, the swans, swans started. Right. So that and, must have been like 2009, 2010. And my daughter was born. Yeah. And uh, I did, I was going part-time. I, all I did was gain a student loan. Yeah. That's what I got out of that program. Yeah. Besides a little bit of just self-knowledge that, oh, yeah, if I apply myself, I can do this thing. Yeah. Just like doing cover songs. I bet if I applied myself, I could do it. But yeah. I, I don't see the point. Right, right. Yeah. When when did you move? When did so? When did you leave Detroit and say I'm going to New York? 1980. And you came here? Yes. And you came right to the Lower Manhattan? No, no. I lived in Bensonhurst. Oh Jesus! My girlfriend in New York was moving to New York. Like neither one of us belonged in Detroit. Right. It seemed that way. Like people we would talk to and say, "Yeah, we're moving to New York." They're like, "Of course you are. Yes, yeah. you belong there. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. don't belong here." And I was already I was in a band in Detroit, but then I moved to New York, and there was a choice in Detroit. If you played music, you would go to L.A. or to New York, mm -hmm. and New York was more arty, mm -hmm. and that's where I felt more comfortable. Because by then I was listening, we were listening to Pill, mm -hmm. loved the Misfits, mm -hmm. loved the more arty kind of stuff. I loved Roxy music, of yeah, course, and stuff to. like that. That seemed more New York to me than Definitely. L.A. L.A. I, I was never a big fan of. Had you had any awareness of the stuff that was, you know, a little more underground happening in New York? No. Yeah. Even when I moved here, I did auditions. I auditioned for what later became Live Skull. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I met the drummer, Ivan. I'm still friends with Mark C. and uh -huh. Marnie and Tom. But uh, I auditioned for them, one of my early... I did a lot of auditions. Yeah. And uh, Ivan liked me, and he liked the way I played. And we started playing together. And he later became Ritual Tension, of course. Yeah. yeah. But and, and how quickly did you... Were you finding your way to CBGB and all that? Pretty fast, because we knew about it. You knew about it? I knew about it. So who was playing then? Like Bad Brains and... I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember. I saw James Chance yeah. at a place on 23rd Street uh -huh. with that band that did, um, um, what were they called? Um, Take Me to the A-Train, the A-Train. It was a bit of a hit, a horn band, the but James Chance played. Um, 
Not the Contortions. No, it was different. This was okay. a different band, and James Chance played as well. Okay, gotcha. Um, I didn't see anybody as far in Detroit. I saw you know like the Gang of Four playing to nobody. Jesus. The Cramps playing to absolutely nobody. Really? Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but yeah. And the Cramps. That was one of the highlights of my Detroit. Because I loved the cramps. I already had their singles. Yeah. Human Fly and The Way I Walk. That's an exciting guitar Surfing sound. Surfing Bird. Yes, it was fantastic. Yeah. And uh, you would go to the club, Bookies. That was the only punk rock club that did stuff. I went there every night. And on the cigarette machine were flyers. And one day there was a flyer, very nondescript. And it just said the cramps mm-hmm. from New York City. I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Nobody was there. Right. And Lux just scared everybody. Yeah. Like there was a thing. We would battle the bands and try to beat them. Mm-hmm. But the cramps won. Yeah. yeah. They still win. Yeah. I was just listening to them. Am I crazy for thinking like that surf rock guitar sound is like the best guitar sound ever? For them, it is. Yeah. Because they mixed it with that other crazy Brian Gregory thing. Right. Which is just that big fuzz wash. Yeah. So, and then that super straight drum beat, too. Yeah. Like, so simple. I always It's really menacing and scary. Yeah. It really sounds like bad guys coming in. Yeah. But Gang of Four, that changed my life, too. Yeah. I didn't know you could play music like that. Were you spending a lot of time focusing on the sound of the guitar? Like figuring out your amp setup? No, not really. I had no money. I had my guitar, the same one I played in Swans. A Telly? Yeah. So I had that guitar. Why'd you buy a Telly originally? Because the price worked (laughs) when I went to go look at them. Yeah. I decided I had a different guitar before that, a Gibson Marauder, and it wasn't the right guitar. Right. And then I saw the Telecaster. I liked the color, the TV yellowish kind of uh-huh. thing. It had two pickups, and it was cheap. Big hunk of wood, too. Yeah. yeah. So that became the guitar, even though it's not really the guitar for American bands. Uh-huh. It's more of a British thing, Sure, I think. But I didn't know that then. But the Tele is... I'm, I'm only now... I mean, I'm not a guitar player, so I'm going to cut myself a little slack, but I'm only now realizing the power of the Tele. Yes, they're huge. Yeah. A lot of the greats. Mm-hmm. Play the telly. And even in the early days, the Jimmy Pages and the Jeff Becks. And yeah. Everybody played tellies. Yeah. I don't know why they switch. They always come back. They always come back. Yeah. So you were playing the telly through what? Like a little something you can I carry had around? A, uh, I had a, uh, I bought a custom combo amp. Because I think I, I went to a gig once of Destroy All Monsters. Uh-huh. I saw them a lot. And Ron was playing through one, uh-huh. but he just played through any amp that he. I've seen him play through PVs and Marshalls <laughs> and everything. Every gig, it seemed to be a different amp. Yeah, but I went to a store and they had that custom, and it was cheap. Yeah, so I bought that. That works. Yeah. There, cool. So well, you were living in Bensonhurst. I still think of Bensonhurst. I think of guys in like leather jackets driving long cars, you know, with scars <laughs> across their faces. We saw when we first got there. Um, the guy who did lights at Bookies. Uh-huh. He grew up there, so we all kind of moved there with him. Right. And rented an apartment on the same block he grew up in, and uh, he showed me. He took me to the John Travolta Saturday Night Fever pizza parlor. <laughs> Like the first night I got there, he goes, this pizza parlor, remember the opening yeah. scene? This is the pizza parlor. Sure enough, they had a picture from sure they underneath did. the elevated. Yeah. yeah. I lived there, I think about six months. And then you came? And then moved into the city. Yeah. 
Chelsea. Chelsea. Yeah, originally. And how did you hook up with, I mean, who, what were the first musical relationships that started happening? Really, with Ivan. Yeah. That became Ritual Tension. That was, I did a lot of auditions, and it turns out that I probably spoke to Tommy Victor, because uh-huh. <laughs> I called, because I loved Killing Joke, too. Yeah. And I answered an ad. They were looking for a pill-killing joke guitarist. Uh-huh. Like, that's, that's exactly what <laughs> that's I'm me. interested in. Yeah. So I called and I talked to this guy, and I'm friends with Tommy. And uh, years later, I mentioned that. He's like, I bet I talked to you. But yeah. we, they already had somebody okay. in mind. It was for Marilyn and the movie stars or something like right. that. Right. I'm not even sure. But I think all things work out for the best. Yeah. I did a lot of auditions. Some of them were horrible, and some of them were just, you know, I didn't play well. I didn't right. fit with the people. Or, I mean, I have to imagine you showed up to a lot of situations that you probably didn't even want to be in anyway. Possibly. Well, you never know until you get there. But I mean, like, like you the walk word- in, there's a bunch of guitar players, and they give you a sheet of rock music, right. tablature, and you play a rock song. And I guess they want to see, you know, I did audition, I, I auditioned people. Yeah. And you get all sorts like they it's a difficult thing to do, I would say. Yeah. This idea of auditioning though, like sort of implies that you the auditionee, uh yeah. you know, it's like that you want to be a part of. Yes, you're the there thing. for a job basically. Yeah. yeah. I I've showed up so many times to play, you know, in my first several years in New York, you know, I'd go sh- show up somewhere to play and I'd get there and go, is this what I want? I don't right. think I want this. Yes. Yeah. Like, ooh, I hope I don't get this job. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that kind of thing. Yeah, but they were fun. I think it's a great experience, though. Totally. Like to go and just do blind auditions. I mean, if you're really committed to it and, you know, you can sort of uh, broaden your skill set. Yeah. I mean, that's... Or get over some of your jitters about yeah. what you do. Yeah. Yeah, I've had some disastrous ones. Really? I'm just not... I don't didn't know how to. I'd say I play better now than I did then. Sure, <laughs> I was auditioning, and I could probably do a little better now. Yeah, partially just being more, um, being able to communicate. Better now. I think something that happens certainly. That I'm a self-taught musician, and this is something that happens to me is when I am in some version of an auditionary role you know whether it's like jamming with you just jamming with people who are you know who I, I admire or beyond me or whatever you know i'll try to do things with the instrument that i think people want to hear yeah and that's when i get into trouble right <laughs> yeah that can happen right yeah yeah i always get a little nervous when i like something too much yeah like oh i really uh, oh that's a problem because my tastes are i guess i like it but it doesn't mean everybody else is right Right. So when so you started playing with Swans in what eighty two? And that once again isn't really an audition. It's the way the best. I used to go and stalk drummers when I was playing in bands. Why? Just because I, I wanted to play with drummers. Yeah. And or I'd have a band and we needed a drummer. Yeah. And you just go watch bands and you see somebody that you like. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. go, hey, what are you doing? Why don't you come? Uh, play with us we're playing you know in a couple days yeah come down and play with us and check us out and hopefully they think we're cooler than the band they're in right but swans i was in the band with ivan Uh and we played a party on saint mark's and harry crosby from swans was the doorman Uh and i got along great with him and we all hung out at the holiday 
And um, one day I went into the holiday and asked if Harry was around. They go, no, he's on tour with his band. I was like, blown away. I'm like, really? He's on tour? Yeah. He can actually go on tour? Yeah. That's unbelievable. I didn't really even know he played music at all. Right. And then uh, I had heard about Swans, and then Harry came back and he approached me. He goes, "We need a new, we need a guitar player. Um, you can do this. Why don't you come down and play?" So it wasn't really an open audition. They, they, Harry just said, "Look, I know this guy, mm -hmm. and he hangs out. He knows the same people we know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's already one of us. It's just he's not in the band yet." So I went and I played. They showed me some stuff, and I'm like, "Wow, this is insane!" This yeah, because I was doing like birthday party-ish kind of. Right. That was my thing. Yeah. A little weird, simple. Sure. But not as simple as Swans, and not just throwing everything out the window that you know and making up stuff. I mean, that first was it Filth was the first Filth, one. I mean, yeah. that's a very direct record. Yeah. From the second you hit play, I mean, there's not there's not a lot of subtlety. <laughs> And some of those songs are older songs that Sue Hannell played. Yeah. And a few of them are new ones that yeah. I was involved in. The, we would just go in and play. And it, So when you, when you showed up for that first session, it clicked immediately? Enough. Because I already knew them, too. I knew, you knew Michael. You knew I, no, I didn't know any of them. I uh, knew Harry from right. the bar. And Roly, I had just seen play in Radiant Boys. Right. Because I used to go to Tramps. Yeah. For Tonka Wonka Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> I don't remember. But it was really, it was an awesome venue. Yeah. And you'd see a bunch of bands for almost no money. And um, I saw Radiant Boys and I really liked them. And right when I walked in, I said, Oh, you're the guy from that band I Rolly. like. Yeah. yeah. He was playing percussion at that point. Uh huh. So. Yeah. One of those small world kind of things. Yeah. I don't remember Michael from before that. Right. Because he used to hang out at Holiday too, from what I understand, but I don't remember him. Right. And at that time, were you doing... I feel, I feel like... Because I know you do a lot of solo stuff now. Now. And I wasn't doing anything then like that. Right. I didn't realize I could do it. Were there Was there any improvisation happening in your life? Like free improvisation? No. Yeah. Not really. No. Yeah, I mean, you go and play with people, you make up stuff. Sure, but it wasn't with the point of, you know, change it the minute you get something. That's yeah. what I liked about Swans. Once you got, it, you just kept playing it. Yeah, and then you work on the subtleties of movement. Right, that's kind of, that's been the through line with that. Right, band. I have to say, you know, just to go off track for a second, I went to the the shows that you guys did at Warsaw like a month or two ago. The last shows as the last this one. current iteration of swans right. or most recently played three nights i went the first night with carla okay. bozilich oh nice um and i'd you know i've seen swans several times and it really hit me at that particular show how much of that music or this was my interpretation of it anyway like the sets might be very similar night to night but what seems to really one factor that seems to sort of make each set individual is the way the room is vibrating like the mm. room and the what happens with the compression of sound as as like a total thing sort of guides what the vibe is a little bit i see oh okay as an audience member as an audience member yeah yeah which i have no idea right I mean, there's the vibrations that come from that band, especially right. when you guys get into these like twenty and thirty minute long pieces. Right. Is uh -oh. it? It really it alters my sense of time. You know, huh. I did. You know, the the I think that show was two and a half hours long. Yeah, we play long shows, and I could not. It was one of those things. It was like, was that fifteen minutes long, or was that three hours? That's long? good. That's good. That it, it 
time stops. Yeah. yeah. And it's a full-on commitment. I mean, I'm shocked that people are out there. Yeah. It's like, wow, really? You like this? I mean, I have to imagine there is a period of time where that maybe drove some people away. <laughs> Back in the... Well, it's different now than it was. Yeah. It was, I think, a little harsher yeah back in the old days but then some night like any improv some night i have this habit of doing weird things oh me too like making noise that <laughs> the engineer like if there's a sound guy he's like stop <laughs> then they'd have to stop the tape and tell me to stop clicking my rings or something like right that. but anyway um yeah like any you might have a good night mm -hmm. like an incredible night and a lot of times that's in the rehearsal room right and it doesn't always, you don't always have that great night. But you don't have bad nights anymore. Yeah, there were some bad nights. You know, Recently? Equipment problems. But that's what, I, you know, that's what I was about to get at. I learned this from Fred Frith. We had this conversation one time where I was, I was having this like existential breakdown where I was like, why is it that I can get on stage and play some nights, have a great night, and then have like a, sh like a horrible show, the kind of thing I walk off stage and I want to go jump in front of the bus. And I was talking with Fred and he was saying this thing. He was like, look, you know what you can control, so control that. Make sure your cables are working. Make sure you have uh, your batteries yeah, <laughs> up yeah, to yeah. date. Make sure you get a good line check. And at the very least, all the objective stuff is covered. Right. And I haven't really had a bad show since then. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I've had where I've done sound check. Yeah. And I went out and I did my line check. And then I, I play part of the first song. I go up to play the next one. Suddenly nothing. And it's something in my line. Yeah. And I have to go and troubleshoot, which is tough on stage. Yeah. When everybody's kind of playing and waiting to see if you're going to make the next part. Right. So when you started playing with Swans, did you have a feeling like you were playing in someone else's band? Or how quickly did no, you... No, no, that, that was a band band. We yeah. all were... And you really, felt that from Michael the Michael brought in the main idea. Yeah. Because he was playing bass then, too. Right. So he'd play like this riff i guess you would call it yeah and we join in with what we thought was the right thing mm -hmm. and what were those first shows like my first show was in philadelphia opening for the birthday party really which was you know they were my heroes yeah then. anyway that was fun yeah yeah that must have been that's like an auspicious start yeah i've heard tapes of that show and swans we listened to them when we got back and of course i made a mistake and it's like, oh, I came in at the wrong part, uh -huh. but it's fine. You're Wait, coming. you're saying when Swans reformed in this most recent uh, carnation, you guys listened to that tape? No. Okay. Back in the day. Okay. We, it had been recorded, and we had a tape of that show. Yeah. So we could hear what it kind of sounded like. Yeah. Swans is interesting to me, and, this, and the group of people that have come and gone through it, um, in that... Sometimes things just kind of take a while to evolve into what they are. Uh, and every step of the way, you know, is, is somehow unique. And, but you only get to a certain point of doing things a certain way if all of these things had come before. And sometimes that happens very quickly. Right. And sometimes it doesn't. Or, well, One thing happens quickly. Like when Swans first reformed and we started doing our first shows. Yeah. If you saw the first show of the tour and the last show, completely different. Yep. But it was fine, the first show. Yeah. 
It was exciting. It was good. I always enjoyed those tours. I knew that if the same people came to, if we did a follow-up show, uh-huh. it would be different. If the, Wait, if the same... Same songs, yeah. except the songs had evolved. I mean, how much of that songwriting do you think is about leaving room for that evolution? Oh, I don't know. That would be a Michael thing. Okay. I think he has an idea and we try it out. Yeah. Like, there were some nights where it's like at waiting to go on stage he goes oh do try this thing yeah which is kind of an odd time to do it <laughs> but it's like oh yeah fine i know exactly what you mean it will, sure which i like to do i have always done that when i rehearse in bands when i used to rehearse in bands <laughs> um where okay this next part coming up i'm doing something else mm -hmm. so don't worry about me i'm just going to do something else mm -hmm. and see what happens mm-hmm so that's kind of an improv-y thing. Yeah. And it might just reinforce the original part. Yeah. And you may end up coming back to that yeah. anyway. I mean, and then well, as, as the 80s progressed, were you coming into contact with stuff that was happening over at the Knitting Factory and, and that world of, of music making? Not really. No, just, I was not really uh, busy with my job and playing in Swans. What was the job at the time? I still worked with uh, Mark Campbell from The Nails. Yeah. It was a company called Shady Character. Mm -hmm. Supplied like trash in vaudeville with skinny ties. Mm -hmm. Just a, a normal shipping and receiving kind of job, mm -hmm. which allowed me to go on tour. And then I would call when I got back and I'd go back to work. Yeah. So when did you begin to incorporate pedals or other abstract uh, uh yeah never really was much of a pedal guy always yeah. with the distortion box yeah and i even went through a little chorus phase a little bit way back when uh -huh. <laughs> but um it was just it was one day let's see a while ago where i decided to just plug everything in yeah at my place you know i had a bunch of tiny amps right i'm like i'm just gonna run if there's a stereo, I'm going to run it out into different things mm -hmm. and then make the guitar just play. So I would do all that and then hit some note or a drum machine and turn some knobs and walk away and listen to it and enjoyed it very much. Yeah. And then eventually it got to the point where, wow, I should be able to, if I can condense this down and control it more and come up with playing stuff that I like, then I might be onto something. So this is sort of like drone-based stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it all is. I mean, I consider what I do now is kind of drony. Yeah. Yeah. The drone is, is a tricky one. Yeah. It's real easy for drones not to be interesting. It's like, I, I think of that, we were talking about earlier, movement. Yeah. It's got to be movement. It's got to be movement. So if you just push a button and let the thing go... It's just going to do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can influence it, mm -hmm. I think you can do some stuff with it. Mm -hmm. The best one-note guitar player is Lindsey Buckingham. Mm -hmm. One note. Mm -hmm. But he move, makes it move, and he knows right when to do it. Yeah. So. One of the great moments of my life, uh, you know, if I, if I'm on my way out when I'm making my list of, like, I'm really happy that that happened. This will definitely be on there, was I got to play at the Park Avenue Armory a couple years ago. Oh, yeah. uh, a duo with Laurie Anderson for about 15 minutes. Uh, she had um, Lou Reed's guitar tech set up his metal machine music setup. 
So, you know, these amps all kind of pointing at each other just yeah, right. I've seen a, that set up. And then she had different people come and improvise her throughout the day, wow. walking around the space and playing. And I don't know that that kind of sort of uh, homage would work with anyone else ever. But being around Lou's stuff like that and interacting with it, I felt like... Like I, I felt like I, I, I was able to kind of touch the sound in a way. Oh, interesting! You know, it was really like a very emotional experience for me. Huh. I had a guitar player friend come over to the house when I had all that stuff set up. Yeah, and uh, I said, "Here, check it out." He goes, "Can't you just make it play like a guitar?" <laughs> I said, "Okay." So I just turned everything off, and he played guitar for a little while. Yeah, and, it's not for everyone. No, and it's very. There are. I've done some studio dates. And they're like, yeah, we want that. Yeah. It's like, no, you don't really want that. It's not really, it's nothing you can really control. You kind of have to come to it more than it's going to yeah, come to you. Yeah, you set it up and then you play against it. Yeah. Like, they're not really loops. I use delays mainly. Yeah. Mainly. But I feel like, I mean, for me, something I use a lot of delays too with the clarinet. And yeah. one thing I love, and I do it with like long reverb trails too, is I like hearing that place where two notes cross each other yeah. or sit on top of each other and then you know there's this like this you know psychoacoustic phenomenon that can occur with you yeah. know beating tones that to me is like the yeah. the sweet spot yeah and once again we were talking about throwing in little not homages but you accidentally like play a song and uh -huh. it's in there you can't really control that all the time either when you're doing that kind of delay based music right it's kind of a, a crapshoot in a way yeah you hope it works, and sometimes it does, but it doesn't always work. Do you ever wonder if you like wonder or care or hope if I have these experiences where I'm playing live, especially when there's like this extra musical comp or you know the pedals things kind of has its own thing happening, and I was like, oh, that's fucking cool, you know? So I'll kind of chase it and play with it, and it doesn't even occur to me like, are people enjoying? This? I know, right? right. <laughs> like I'm enjoying that out of it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's one of the things. Yeah, but people realize that. Yeah, I hope I so. Think. Yeah, they're like, wow, that guy's really having a good time. This is good. Yeah. I mean, what do you think now, you know, so, you know, Swans has kind of come and gone over the years. The membership has changed, you yeah. know, quite a lot. And Except for this last seven years. I mean, it's been I mean, the longest running Swans. I would I've love to hear about that because this last seven years of record making has, you know, with one or two, but one or two albums specifically has become some of my favorite shit that I listen to oh. all the time. Um and it sounds like something and this was kind of what I was maybe getting at earlier was like it sound to me it sounds that way because of everything that you know the the, the 25 years prior had to happen for this stuff well that's the experience Michael has gotten yeah like all of that like he's never stopped yeah he's never went and put it down and did a day job right it's always been about music and specifically his music which is Swans yeah and he's kind of a and he got a group together, and I used to always say, you know what, we're all older, so we now say yes rather than no. Like, we know who the boss is. Right. Like, back in the old days, maybe Michael would ask you to do something, you'd go, ah, you know, yeah, 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 man. not doing that. Right. That's stupid. Right. But then you reach a certain, it's like, yeah, great. Yeah. That's fine, I can do that. It's exciting to help people, yeah. you know, see their thing through. Yeah. You know? But there's also this thing like, I, I have you know for for everyone who's come and gone through the band, and then especially everyone who showed up for these last seven or eight years, you know you and Thor and and all these other guys, like 
but I think especially with you, I have to, you know, it's like I, there's this cat in my neighborhood that I used to see walking around. A cat, like, you know, right, and right. Uh, I used to see this cat. I was not jazz talking me now. No, I'm talking okay. this actual four legged cat. And then okay. I always thought it was a pretty cool looking cat, and then I stopped seeing it. And then about six months later, I saw it again, and it was missing a part of its ear. Uh-uh. And I said, holy shit, I thought that cat was dead, you know? But I looked at him, and I was like, clearly he's been out there doing something, and now he's back in the neighborhood, bringing his experience back to the neighborhood. And then, Did he just have one ear clipped? No, something. He you know, he had oh, a patch okay. of fur missing, so obviously okay. he got into it with someone. Because yeah. uh, they do that ear clipping thing to mark them. No, this when they was go through the system. You know, yeah, this, this was, was a the, little. The cat looked at me and said, "You should see the other guy." Right, right. Oh, but there's something about you know when you, you go out into the wilderness, you know, you get your ear clipped, you get, you know, you have your experience, and then you bring it back, and yeah. you know when you go off I think like that, we all brought in our experiences. Yeah, yeah, to the new bands. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what do you when you think about what you had done separate from Swans and have continued to do? What is it that you think you you've brought back to the music? Oh, I just got to become a better player. Yeah, a better listener and a more on board in yeah. a way, I guess. But yeah. just a better player in general and better to be able to communicate with the instrument better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel I feel like a lot of the stuff I heard, especially at that last gig that I saw um, at Warsaw. You know, I feel like a lot of the stuff that's coming from your guitar amp is is like coloring the sound um, in a much more interesting way than just like playing the chords of the tune. Right. You know, like there, there's it's almost like oh wait, there's that demon coming into the sound. Yeah, again. that's what we try to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you do a lot of the solo stuff. Um, have you put together like what kind of bands have you been working with in the last few years besides Swans? I play with Al. I was in bands with Al Kizzy's uh-huh. and uh, Vinny. Vinny. We had a band, Vinny right. Signorelli. Yeah. Uh, we had bands. That was more rock band, though. Yeah. And that was quite a few years ago, yeah. honestly. Um, but that was the last real band that I rehearsed with. Yeah. But then since then, I've done $5 Priest. Yeah. And we rehearsed on Monday. That huh. was our rehearsal day. Uh-huh. And... Uh, my thing was Ron used to talk about rehearsing more. I, I said, "Yeah, I said, it won't help." Why? Why wouldn't it help? <laughs> uh, just my idea about how we played. Yeah, I'm like, nah, it's not going to help. We're not, it's better when it's kind of this loose. Thing. Yeah, yeah, it needs there's some kind of spontaneity. I, that band wasn't trying. Like, if Speedball Baby was a good case in point because Ron and Matt, the guitar player, uh-huh. it was about their relationship, right? And I kind of felt that way a little bit about $5 Priest. Like our first gig, it's uncanny how locked in we are. And it's not because of rehearsal. Yeah. It's about being there and blind luck. And there was no set times to parts. Right. And it all went by the vocals, Ron's vocals. Uh-huh. And yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it makes me happy. I don't know if anybody else, they think it's, practice yeah but it's really not it's just being aware and just being that person you are yeah five dollar priest and is that band still going uh i don't think so no ron stopped doing that yeah they did a record the last record was really cool i played on a couple songs grasshopper kind of took over that Mm -hmm. role and they got a new bass player new drummer so it became an entirely different band by the time it ended yeah. 
How were those shows for you at Warsaw back in November? They were good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's bittersweet, of course. It's emotional? Yeah. And yeah. the last show, I got to hand my guitar to my daughter because she was right there. There was a perfect part on the side of the stage yeah. for off stage. Uh-huh. So my daughter and wife were there. Yeah. So we ended and I handed my guitar and she got to sit there with it. That was very special the, for me. I have to, yeah. Maybe for her. I don't know. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure, sure that's something, something she can too. remember. Yeah. Not every dad does that kind of thing, I guess. Right. Well, and not every band gets to have that sense of finality or that sense right. of... And she's a, so little, she doesn't really get that part, maybe. She will someday. Yeah. She will. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I never got to see my dad in front of, you know, 600 people or however, right. however big that club is, you know, like they're showing up for... Yes, yeah. You know, those concerts were very much an event, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and all three nights were really good. Yeah. I don't have a particularly favorite one. Right. Yeah. Did, um, when, when you think about, I, I, you know, I was a kid in the 80s. I'm born in 1980, uh, and I grew up. 45 miles north of the You're city. You're born in 1980? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this always is... You, one day you'll be shocked when people tell you when they were born. I already am. It's, already, oh, okay. it's, it's begun happening. I have played music with people who were born in 1995. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, it gets, it's weird. You never think it's, really it's going to that. But, but now, what's, what's interesting to me now is actually now I'm around a lot of people who like refer to me as the old guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, my memory of, you know, we'd come into the city, you know, as a kid uh, for whatever, you know, stuff my mom was working on or, you know, got Russian daughters or something like that. And my memory of like the Lower East Side at the time was, you know, like Night of the Living Dead. Uh, when you think about. Yeah, mid 80s then. Yeah. You would be like 86, five or 85, six 86, or 87. I remember hearing a lot of rap music coming from people's cars. Sure. That was, that's you know, when all that was really was just happening. starting in a way. Yeah. I remember, you know. Uh, what, what's your general memory of New York in the 80s? If you had to take a paintbrush and just sort of like... Yeah, it'd be pretty gray. Gray. Dirty yeah. and mean. Like I noticed when, coming back from Europe on the earlier tours. Yeah. You know, we did like three-month tour. Yeah. And I'd just be like, oh, man, people are so unhappy here. Yeah. Nobody seems to be happy. And they're rushing. Yeah. And it's dirty. There's junk everywhere nobody's yeah. picking up anything why not yeah <laughs> so gray and kind of dismal right yeah but mean and rushed and uh did you feel that change in the 90s it's still pretty rushed but yeah i think it, it got a little more relaxed a little more, i reason. feel it that way I, yeah I feel like, like i don't get that culture shock so much when i come back from europe yeah, but part of that might be globalization too, and it could be, and just uh, there's money. Somebody has money. I don't. <laughs> there is money to clean up stuff, right? Or the people that are now, maybe people care more now. It's a combination of things, yeah. you know. I mean, certainly, you know, there's always been parts of New York City that, like, you know, the West Village has always been pretty charming yeah. yeah it's always been you know like really nice looking yeah, places I lived on 22nd street and uh like 8th avenue that's a, that area has always scared the hell out of me i'm still kind of scared of it over there why i don't know it just feels kind of cold and desperate over there oh that's funny i don't know uh, what it is 
It's weird over there. Yeah. Like it's way far away. It is. But there's more people. It's much more build up like everywhere now. Right. But um, yeah, it was clean. Yeah. That w- over there was always pretty, looked kind of polished. Yeah. Does the East Village still feel like a village to you? Do you feel like you can go out and walk around and... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's still... I mean, I walked down Avenue D That's last week, it, they, and I'm like, this hasn't changed at all. They've maintained a lot of integrity on Avenue uh, yeah, D. Yeah, yeah. I love that everyone has noticed that, too. Yeah. Yeah, Avenue D is still very authentic. Yeah. Probably not as much as in the 80s. <laughs> right. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it is still a little sketchy in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I tell the story. My daughter goes to the Earth School. Where's that? 6th Street and Avenue B. Uh-huh. And that's right across from Swan's rehearsal studio. Really? And right next door to Tucasa studio. Uh-huh. That is gone. That was where I did my first auditions was Tucasa. On 6th between B and C. Yeah. Yeah. No, on Tucasa was on B. Mhm. Across from Grupo, right? You know the pizza parlor, yeah, yeah. where the tattoo shops is. Yeah, um, the Earth School is the big school on the corner, like sixth, fifth, right, fourth. Okay. And my daughter goes there, but I remember taking cigarette breaks at Swan's rehearsals, going, "Oh, what a miserable life it must be to be going to that school. <laughs> Poor kids." And now look, I'm there with there my daughter, and it's it. fantastic. It is fantastic. Yeah. Man, I, I think the East Village, one of my favorite things about that neighborhood, they're all the little parks. The yeah. tiny, not the park, what do we call they're the tiny little gu- the though, gardens. They? Are they? Yeah. I don't know. When I walk around, you know, in the summer at night and I see like small groups of parents with their kids in yeah. the gardens having like a little, you know, bonfire or like yeah. storytelling thing, I feel like, oh, okay. The, the, it's not all hard edge around no, here. There is a nice, sweetness to this. There are nice gardens. Some of them, there's some issues sometimes with locking out. Yeah. Because people, I think, volunteers take care of certain parts, and they just don't want anybody walking in at any hour. Which makes sense. So I think some of them are more like clubs. Yeah. That you have to maybe donate time and money, maybe, to be a part of it. Right. But yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. But then, yeah, all the building is incredible, like over there by CBGB's. I, it's like unrecognizable. I tried not to. I try not to walk on Bowery at all. I was telling my daughter on our way to school. You know the the Ninth Street Park where the willows they cut yeah. the willows down. Right. Um, I walked by and Mina was all excited because we went there on Halloween. They always have a big party there. Mm-hmm. I said, Mina, just think. At some point, you'll be walking with your daughter, and you'll have to explain there used to be a garden there. And you played there for Halloween to your little daughter. Yeah. Because that garden is not going to be there in 20 years. Right. At least in my skeptical, weird idea. Like, there's a good chance it's going to be a high rise. So, what concept is that you're explaining? And she's like, what do you, just that time moves along. Yeah. And things happen. Because I did that driving around with my dad when I was a kid in Detroit. Yeah. We'd go into a neighborhood and you go, this was all a farm. Like, no way. How could this have been a farm? Isn't that kind of great? That's impossible. And then I remember the beginnings of some of the highways in Michigan or mm-hmm. in Detroit area, you know, linking the suburbs because it used to not be mm-hmm. all those highways. There were a couple, but then they started building them. And I remember being a kid and 
my dad saying, oh, yeah, this will be a major highway linking this to that. But then it kind of kills all the businesses that you used to see because mm-hmm. people don't see them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I mean, do you ever read this book by Luke Santi, uh, Low Life? Yes, I've read that. That book, I mean, I just feel like you could just pick up any page in there yeah. and learn something about the very place that you're standing. If yes, you live absolutely. like around in this area, yeah. you know. And the alienist was kind of fun too. Yeah, they talk about old New York. Yeah, and gangs of New York. I still that. feel it, you know. I mean, like I, I love this city. I re- I mean, I, I didn't realize this until recently. There are people all over the world who live places they don't love. Right. You know. And I'm a proud New Yorker. Uh, I'm a, more specifically, I'm a proud Lower East Sider. And despite all the changes, you know, many of which are displeasing uh, for a number of reasons, it's still like all that shit's still here. Yeah. The ground I walk on, I know there's is, you know, at least 10 feet thick of bones and grime <laughs> and just, you know, atrocity and right. hilarity and just all of these things. You know, these ghosts are very strong. Do you get that? Do you, do you sense, like when you're walking around on Avenue B or something, and you say, oh my God, that's where Charlie Parker used to live, you know? Right, that kind of thing. Well, Leadbelly lived two doors down from me. That's what I'm saying. There's a plaque on the wall, and I never knew it because I would never go that way. Right. Towards D. Yeah. But then somebody mentioned that. I have a, a, who is it? Sunhouse is buried in a cemetery I used to play in when I was a kid. Really? I was listening to Sunhouse just before you showed up. In Detroit. Yeah. And I had no idea why on earth he would be buried in that cemetery. Uh-huh. I think I looked it up. Well, he was from Mississippi, wasn't he? I have no idea. I know he's not from Detroit. <laughs> but he's buried in the cemetery across from the golf course. Uh-huh. And, well, some of my little friends lived over there, and it was right there did you go see him no yeah i found out about it i man that stuff gets me you know i i I take walks out here on the river you know and i'll say oh that's where albert eiler that's where he went you know oh yeah you know it's like it's not lost on me i'll i will listen i'll go out there with my headphones and i'll listen to albert eiler and just stare at the river you know yeah something something about it i dig i always used to wonder about um some super guitar player picking up the actual guitar you're playing and what would it sound like what on earth would you know back then it would be like Richie Blackmore? What would he be? What would he play if he picked up my guitar right now? Right. What would be? You mean like what would be his first yeah. thing he runs like, his fingers what would across? He do? Yeah. Or do you ever think just, about like if you could play the? You know, I always think like, all right, you know, what if someone gave me like Charlie Parker sax? I would right. still sound like shit on sax. That's the, the idea. Yeah, <laughs> but it has less to do with the equipment than right. the person. Yeah. But it would be cool to hear like you know like. Yeah. You pick up a guitar, you're immediately going to, you know, just kind of... But then you're back into that metal machine music thing. Yeah. Um, And my friend who came over, he goes, no, I don't want this. I want it to sound like that. Right. Whereas did you, did you play through the rig? No, 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 no. I played sort of along with it. Oh, I see. Yeah. The the rig was was playing into this gigantic empty space and we played, you know, with the space. Which you, was, you see people with huge back lines. That band, of Jucifer, I think. Yeah, I know Jucifer. What a back line they had. But is that all for real? I don't know. I mean, there's that photo. I forget. And you see the girl and the guy, and I'm like, they lugged that, all that stuff? I, I used to live in Athens, Georgia, where they, <laughs> where they were from, and I used to go yeah. see them you know, for oh, four okay. or $5. And even then, I didn't buy it. I mean, I, I dig it. I like Jucifer. You know, the music's cool, and they're very nice people. I just mean, like, come on. You, you you don't need forty amps to shape the sound yeah, well, that it was I'm amazing hearing. Amazing looking, it's cool looking. Yeah, it didn't really sound like. I'm like, wow, 
plug me into that. You know, I'll I make to, some noise. About I don't know, like something like ten years ago, uh, a bunch of us went down to go see that band Sun yes, at, um, at the Masonic Temple. Yeah. And the Masonic Temple was not equipped to to do the show. The power kept going out. Uh, it was a nightmare. They cut off the air conditioning. The whole place was miserable. And I was just thinking to myself, Hey, I got a concept. Why not play through twenty amps instead of forty? And you know, I'm pretty sure the music will still come across. Right. I don't know. What, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, we have that discussion with Swans. It's like, really, we each need to have two amps, you know, to sound like this and blow our ears out? Yeah. Maybe, yes. I mean, two amps is one thing. Four, 40, 60 amps. Yeah. I don't know. I like well, it. It's cool looking. Yes, that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when you're 14, yeah. seeing that big wall of marshals is exciting it looks pretty cool yeah, yeah it does look cool but then now you have the facades like you say yeah the big las vegas facade of amps right with the little combo behind it with the microphone <laughs> to it well more and more you see the guys like you'll see the the pedal boards people now really need to get they, they need to rein it back in it's a little ridiculous looking it's getting out there it's well good. you're back to punk rock where punk rock comes out of people who want to play music but they didn't go to juilliard and they're not super accomplished musicians yeah but they can bang on this guitar mm -hmm. and make noise and it sounds great to them and it's fun and now you can't play music without 50 pedals right expression pedals and yeah. triggers and all this yeah. other shit and i don't know go back to just plugging in the amp and i always notice that whenever i have to troubleshoot my amps in europe especially I had a Sun amp and yeah. uh, Ampeg V4. If I plug just directly into the... Wow, did it sound good. Yeah. The minute you start running those pedals, and I had a big, long cord for the volume pedal. You're just separating just yourself from the sound. Yeah. It, it kills the tone. And I guess there's ways around that, but I'm not... I don't have the wherewithal to get into it. Oh, that's just exhausting. I was, sometimes I, I watch these rig rundowns on YouTube. Yes, you I've seen watched these? some yeah. of those. I like those. I like them, but also I just, I, I'm listening to these guys explain these crazy chains that they have, and I yeah. get exhausted just listening to them. Is there a uh, My Bloody Valentine rig rundown? Not that I've seen, but I'd like to see that one. We played a festival with them, and I was just like, <laughs> the music store moved in here. Right. He not only had different pedal arrays, but he had different amps to go with different pedal arrays. Right. There must have been 50 I mean, amps up there. I don't know Kevin Shields. I don't want to assume things about Kevin Shields. I love My, my Bloody Valentine, but to assume things, like I, that has to be like an extension of some mental, like, <laughs> like you know, there's like people in life who can't feel like they've achieved anything unless there was like a certain amount of struggle. Maybe. You know, or yeah. they can't just say sure. something directly. They got to take the long way around and really, you got to yeah. say, wait, what was the point of what you just said? Right, right. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But then you always, I find that too. It's like, wow, my amp sounds really good at this, for this part. Yeah. But then it sounds crappy in this other part. Wouldn't it be cool? And a pedal doesn't do it. You need like a completely different amp. And then it just starts becoming a monster. Yeah. Like different guitars. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. So much of the fun of music is problem solving. It might be the most fun, fun aspect of music. Yeah. How and do I do this? How do, yeah, how do I, you know, bridge these two things? And yeah. I don't I, 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 It's a battle I have all the time of to, to, to go towards simplicity, then go more towards simplicity than complexity because 
at least in terms of what I'm going to be physically carrying around. Yes, that, that, there's an issue there too. Yeah. Like, how much do you want to lug? Yeah. Yeah. Unless you have people to do it. Sure. And then that that is really an entirely different thing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming over in this miserable weather and talking, man. It's exciting out there. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was Norman Westberg. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. He's a great guy, that Norman. And I got a lot out of that talk. Go to normanwestberg.com and check him out. He makes great music. And I have a feeling you're going to see some really great stuff coming from him in uh, in, in the near future. NormanWestberg.com. Go to the 5049 website, www.5049records.com. Check out some past episodes. Uh, maybe pick up a CD or a t shirt. Go to the Patreon. Do all that shit. Go to 5049records.com. And that's it. We'll be back this Monday with a new episode. And uh, again, I'm sorry for the delay in getting this up. Uh, please forgive me. All right, that's it. Talk to you in a few days. Bye.